The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City. Good morning, church. Uh, I am Zuzu Varikova, and I'll be reading the scripture this morning. Uh, we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. I'll be reading in English and in Czech. So if you can please stand with me for the reading of the scripture. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to, be, to bear it. Now I'll be reading in Czech. A proto ten, kdo si myslí, že stojí, ať si dá pozor, aby nepadl. Nepotkala vás zkouška nad lidské síly. Bůh je věrný, nedopustí, abyste byli podrobeni zkoušce, kterou byste nemohli vydržet. Nejbrž se zkouškou vám připraví i východisko a dávám sílu, abyste mohli obstát. This is the word of the Lord. Zuzu, you do that so naturally. It's almost like you've spoken that language before. <laughs> so good. So, fam, how are you guys doing this morning? Good. You guys are awake for our first service. I love it. Welcome. Well, welcome to the Burbank location of Story City Church. My name is Jared. I have the honor of being one of the pastors here. We are so glad you are here. Listen, no matter where you're at in life right now, your story is welcome here. Uh, we at Story City exist to lead communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and others. Um, that means as a family, we're learning how to apprentice Jesus. An apprentice is somebody who learns at the feet of a master. So we're watching, we're learning as we participate in what Jesus is doing. And so we are excited that, uh, that uh, you are with us. For those of you who are joining us for the first time or first time in a while or online for the first time in a while, we are a little more than halfway through our kind of main series for the year entitled Aligning with God's Heart for. And really the, the concept behind the sermon is, uh, behind, behind the series is how do we see what God sees and live it out in a way that God sees that so that we can make sure our hearts are in line with God, not saying, God, you have to be in line with us. And a good part of that is by understanding how Paul corrects the church in Corinth. And so Corinth was a, a major city, much like Los Angeles, very influential, young and upcoming in a lot of ways, and yet been around for a long time. And so, uh, so Paul is helping them understand as they're learning how to live out their Christianity in the midst of this demanding culture, what it looks like and, and what needs to be corrected in their hearts and what needs to be uh, sort of lived out in a way with grace. And so this is what they're going through and this helps us to understand exactly what God is doing and calling us to as well. And so we're learning how to live in and live out the gospel inside of the culture that God has called us to. Before we go any farther, let's get to that minute to mingle question for the day. What is your go-to comfort food when you are down? But before I hear your answers, I heard a number of the exact same answers. So if you were mac and cheese, raise your hand. If you were mac and cheese, raise your hand. Okay. I got a number of you guys. All right. It seems like you're the only ones I talked to this morning because that was like the number one answer. Okay. Aside from mac and cheese, we already got you. What, is, what are some other answers? You got... 
Oh, okay. You had two, though. You raised your hand for mac and cheese, so I see. <laughs> you like mac and cheese inside of mashed potatoes and gravy. I, I see. All right, that's okay. I don't judge. I'm just saying you got to do what you got to do. I see, I see that all deep fried somehow. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. What else we got? I missed something. Pizza. Ramen. Ramen. Cho- chocolate. Okay. I know. Hot take here. I am not a fan of chocolate. I, don't, I know, I know, I know, it's okay. I know I'm the wrong one. It's all right. I'm just saying that's not, that is not, I'll eat chocolate-covered things like chocolate-covered almonds, but like chocolate itself, not my deal. Okay, what else? Boba. Boba, okay. All right, thank you. You just spoke to the Asian in me. That's beautiful. <laughs> Movie theater popcorn, buttered or unbuttered? Very buttered. Okay, that's, that's right. Chicken soup, okay. You know, there's something about, uh, food that can become very comforting. But I'll tell you what, I don't know what it is. I can eat the exact same food if I made it. It's never as comforting as if somebody else makes it. Is that right? Like, like I can make myself a sandwich and it can be beautiful. It does not taste as good as, as when my wife makes my sandwich. I don't, I don't know what it is, but it's like makes all the difference in the world. I'm uh, salty, crunchy things. That's my comfort food, chips all day long, um, which really does not go well with keto, so I don't know how that's, how it's going, but um, all right, good. We're going we're gonna, to uh, talk about the way that we look uh, to God for our comfort, uh, but ultimately, um, a part of understanding who God is and the way that he meets, uh, meets our needs when we are feeling in those places like we can't find comfort, those places where you feel like, where, where do I go to? What happens here? What's, what's happening in the midst of this suffering or inconvenience or, or just like how do I get through these times of trials and what does that mean for who we are? Those are also the times that we tend to go to our comfort foods. And so we're going to look at today's scripture reading again. And here's the deal. We stood up Last time, I, I'm going to simply ask you, instead of standing again, that you just prepare your hearts to hear God's word. We believe this is God's word spoken directly to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul directly to us this morning. So here is uh, 1 Corinthians. We're going to read the entirety of our passage, which is 10, 1 to 13. Paul writes, Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, All passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, since they were struck down in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, so that we will not desire evil as they did. Don't become idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ, as some of them did, and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction, on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. I want you to go ahead and underline that last line in your Bibles today. Underline that last line. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Now, 
this whole passage can be really confusing because Paul is referencing all of these Old Testament experiences with the Jewish people. And he's, he's sort of uh, popcorning them so fast that it's, it's almost like uh, he just expects us to understand what's going on, which is interesting because the church in Corinth would not have necessarily grasped this. And so, uh, so he's using all of his examples, and, and uh, I'm going to take a little bit of time today to try and go through them to help us grasp how this relates to what Paul is trying to tell us. Um, I'm also excited because we get to take on one of the more misunderstood passages at best misunderstood, at worst misrepresented passages. Um, and so the crux of what we're going to talk about today is verses 12 to 13. In verses 1 to 10, Paul is setting up the lesson. In verse 11, he's telling us why this is important. And in verses 12 to 13, he gives us the lesson that he actually wants us to take away from this portion of Scripture. And so for those of you taking notes today, this is our big idea. As beloved children of God, we must look to the Father. As beloved children of God, we must look to the Father. Now we're going to see that we must look to the Father for his faithfulness, for his purpose, and for our identity. Now again, I'm going to set things up by explaining verse 1 to 10. It's going to feel like a lot in the beginning to set this up. I promise I will bring it together. I'll connect it. So just bear with me for a little bit. Um, I'll show you how relevant this is. So you guys ready? You guys with me still? Good. I didn't lose you in the first five minutes. That's fantastic. Here we go. Verse 1. Now I want you, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That sounds like a weird statement. What he's talking about is baptism does something to our hearts. And so uh, it, it, it does something in a way that really helps us to understand who God is. It's 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 formative spiritually. And even though we can't always see it from the outside, it does something on the inside. And what Paul is saying here is that the, is the, the people of Israel going through the, through the cloud and through the sea, we'll explain that in just a minute, was a form of baptism. It did something to their hearts, and that's what he wants us to understand. So the first reference to the cloud comes from Exodus chapter 13. God has saved his people through the suffering of a man named Joseph, He endures incredible suffering so that the 72 members, that's the entire nation of Israel, 72 members of the tribe can be saved from severe famine. They move to Egypt where they become so large the Egyptians become afraid of them. They enslave them. And you get this great animated movie called Prince of Egypt. Thank you. Uh, God raises up a man named Moses to lead him to freedom. And the final miraculous act that God uses to uh, to get Pharaoh to release the people of Israel is to kill the firstborn of every person and animal in Egypt. Horrific. Horrific. It's horrible, horrible time. You imagine the firstborn child and the firstborn animal in the entire United States. We wake up the next morning and that's dead. That would be devastating as a country. It's horrific. It's not a good thing. But this is the final act. And here's what's interesting is that the only thing that saved the Israelites from the same fate was that God said anyone who sacrificed a lamb and placed the blood of that lamb on their door would be spared. They would be passed over, which is where we get the Passover festival, which is the festival that Jesus was crucified on at Easter, Passover. So the blood of the lamb is what saves us. But I'm, I'm digressing. God leads his people out of slavery and towards the promised land. Let's pick this up in verse 17 of Exodus chapter 13. 
says this, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. That's the quickest way out. For God said, the people will, will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around toward the Red Sea along the road to the wilderness. And the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. So they were ready for war, but God said they think they're ready for war. They're really not ready for war. I'm not going to do that to them. So uh, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. They set out from Succoth and encamped to Etham to the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them, listen to this, in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day. So there's this pillar of cloud that's leading them and the people of Israel are following them. That's during the day. And in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so they could travel day or night. Verse 22. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place at the front of the people except you're going to hear in just a moment. So this is exactly what Paul's referring to when he says the people were under the cloud. They're under the guidance of the cloud. They're following the direction. They don't know where they're going, but they're following this cloud. Now next, he mentions the passing through the sea. This is from the next chapter, Exodus 14. Take a look. Then the angel of God, who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. Now, interesting. It calls the cloud the angel of God. There's something happening here where it's not just a supernatural cloud, but it's, it's the angel of the Lord, and we're going to get a clue even more who that is uh, when we hear Paul's statement later. But it stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and Israelite forces. There was a cloud and darkness. It lit up the night, and neither group came near each other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, The Lord drove back the sea with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with waters like a wall to them on their right and to their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. When the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh, that had gone after them into the sea. Not one of them had survived. Now, the cloud of fire, the cloud and the fire never left them, even as God provided a way out between the sea and the army of Pharaoh. And even though God had miraculously provided, the longer they stayed in the desert, the harder it became for them to trust God. The people are wandering around. So they've seen these great miracles, but they're still struggling to trust God for their provision. Over and over, you hear the people of Israel say, if you read these portions of scripture i wish we'd just go back to egypt i wish we'd go back to egypt at least there even in slavery we knew we had food every day i mean i get it how are you supposed to feed and water a couple million people in the middle of the desert right we find this in exodus 16 the next portion the lord spoke to moses i've heard the complaints of the israelites tell them at twilight you will eat meat 
and in the morning you will eat bread until you're full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So at evening, quail came and covered the camp. God brought enough quail to cover for millions of people. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses told them, it's the bread the Lord has given you to eat. And this brings us to verse 4 of our 1 Corinthians scripture. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that flowed from them, and that rock was Christ. Okay, so we've seen what, uh, what, uh, <clears throat> what they were led through. We've seen the cloud and the fire. We understand that. We see the water they were led through. And now we get to this same spiritual drink and the rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. What is that referring to? And this is actually referring to two different stories. This is uh, uh, in Israel's Exodus. The first is from chapter 17. where The people were again complaining. That they didn't have the provisions they wanted. And at least they could go back to Egypt and get what they, what they thought they needed. They didn't have to worry about food and water. So Exodus chapter 17, verses 2 to 6. I know, I'm, we're going through a lot right now, but I promise it'll, it'll come back connect. So the people complained to Moses. Again, uh, I feel Moses, this is, uh, this is, this is like uh, one of the pastor's jobs is to catch all the complaints. Some of you think I'm the only one you're allowed to complain to. <laughs> I love you for it. Um, but remember, Josh is here too, so be happy to complain to Josh. <laughs> he really likes that. Uh, verse 2, so the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them, why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while they'll stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now the next story, it's similar but not the same story, is what leads to Moses sinning. He gets so frustrated at the people and they're complaining again and their inability or refusal to trust God. And so we get to another situation where there's no water in the desert. It's from the book of Numbers, chapter 20. There was no water for the community. So they assembled against Moses and Aaron. At this point, they haven't figured out God continues to be their provider. The people quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's like this desire to go back to Egypt over and over again. So many of us, quick side note, uh, so many of us are, are so afraid of what could be that we will stay in the known even if it's bad because we're afraid of the possibility of what might be. Okay. Why have you led us up from Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's not a place of grain, figs, vines, and pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting. They fell down, face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, take the staff and assemble the community. You and your brother Aaron are to speak to the rock while they watch. Not hit it this time. Speak to it, and it will yield its water. You will bring out water for them from the rock and provide drink for the community and their livestock. 
So Moses took the staff in the Lord's presence just as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff so that abundant water gushed out, and their community uh, and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me to demonstrate my holiness in the sight of Israel by speaking to the rock instead of hitting it, you will not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. Okay, verses 5 to 6 uh, of our scripture for today go with 11 and 13. So we're going to come back to 5 and 6. Let's pick it up. It's 7 to 10. Paul writes, don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. In a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Verses 7 to 8 are from the book of Exodus where they're finally safe and secure in the wilderness. Moses goes to God to meet with, uh, goes up a mountain to meet with God to get the Ten Commandments. And the people of Israel in that brief time make a golden calf and they decided to worship it as their rescuer from Egypt. Like they, they, st- they still haven't got it just like many of us. And, uh, and they decide to throw a party that would meet or exceed industry standards. Uh, verse 8 re- refers to the people of Israel all going tinder with the locals. And they start to worship the locals' gods. And so Yahweh brings a plague and 23,000 die in a day and 24,000 die total. The other 1,000 die at some other point, but related to it. And so uh, this is what he's referring to in those verses. And verse 9 is a reference to Numbers chapter 21, which is, by the way, side note where we get the medical symbol, the caduce. This is where it comes from. For you nurses in the room. Numbers 21, 5 to 8. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you let us up from... You guys have heard this before. Why have you let us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water and we detest this wretched food. Now they're complaining about the food that God has given them. The Lord then sent poisonous snakes among the people. I guess that was a bad move. And bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, All right, we've sinned. <laughs> we get it. We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord so he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image, put it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. That's why the medical symbol is the staff with the snakes coiled around it. That's the caduce. Verse 10 of 1 Corinthians can refer to all of these events or many of the times, the other times that Israel complained against God. Now, again, I spent a lot of time setting all this up. Why did I set all of this up? For those taking notes today, this is the first way we need to look to the Father. The first way we need to look to the Father is for his faithfulness. If you think about it, Paul is writing to correct the church in Corinth. He's helping them to understand that their way of looking at it, like trying to add Jesus to their culture, trying to add Jesus to their life, instead of letting their lives permeate, Uh, through Jesus permeate their lives and then live out Jesus inside of their culture. They're trying to add Jesus and it doesn't work. But look at what Paul is saying. All of the examples he uses are negative ones. Paul's like, hey, we should learn from our ancestors. Yeah, it's more like don't do this, right? But, But instead of like, hey, here's what they did that was really good. Every single one of them is a bad example. Here's what they did and failed. Here's what they did and failed. That's not, that's not encouraging. Right? I look at that and I'm like, well, if they can't figure it out, and they had like God doing huge miracles, 
how am I supposed to figure this out when I don't get to see that as obviously in my everyday life? This brings us to verses 11 and 12 in today's scripture. These things, all the stuff that Paul has listed, all the things we just went through, happen to them as what? Examples. And they were written for what? Our instruction. On whom the ends of the ages have come. He's saying, look, that was the beginning. We get to see now what's already happened. Paul's writing after the resurrection of Jesus. He's like, look, we get the end of the story when they haven't, they didn't see that. They didn't see the hope that finally came. We see the hope, and so we have to understand what's happening. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. What we see in them is the same struggle. The Corinthians had it. The people of Israel had it. A struggle to believe they were truly God's people. His beloved children, the people of Israel, as they're leaving Egypt, continue to, to fail to see that God is going to be their faithful provider, that he is going to be taking care of them, even though he takes care of them. I mean, he, he parted the seas. He provided food where there was none. He created manna from heaven. He brings quail to the camp. He, he has a cloud that, that leads them in a pillar of fire. Like, that sounds amazing. But they failed to realize that by choosing them, God has both tied his story to his chosen ones, but also that he's brought his people into his redemptive plans. Here at Story, one of... Uh, our values is that our story is God's story. And this is really what we're talking about, that the ups and downs of our story, the twists and turns ultimately point to God as our provider, as our redeemer, as our father. And just like the people of Israel and the church in Corinth, we still struggle to be obedient to God too. But also, like the people of Israel and the church in Corinth, God's faithfulness is not dependent on our obedience or our works or our ability to understand and trust and obey. See, the thing that God shows us most clearly through all of those stories that Paul points to is that despite Israel's failure over and over and over and over again, God continued to save and rescue them. Like how many times did they say, let's go back to Egypt, we're out. And God's like, oh, really? Really? You're going to create a golden calf and say that that's what just saved you? Okay, let me, let's do this again. How do I come in and rescue you? Like, it's mind-blowing. If my kids messed up this time, I'd be like, hey, I, I think it's time for you to be somebody else's kids. That's not true, but you know what I'm saying? Like, God shows us the same faithfulness, salvation, protection, provision, and care today as he did to the people of Israel. And this passage points to God's consistency, the consistency of his nature as that pursuant missionary God, the God that doesn't wait for us to try and come up to him, but the God that comes down to us and meets us right where we are at, despite our rebellion and our sin. And so Paul's encouraging us. He's like, hey, fam, you learn from others' mistakes. It's important. Let's look back and see. You're not the first one to face these hardships, these trials, these persecutions. You're not the first person to experience these things. Humanity is humanity. We've been going through this for a long time. So look back at these things. If these guys screwed it up this bad, you're not in unique company. It's okay. We have to look at it this way so we continue to learn to love God and follow him in obedience. It also serves as a reminder for us who look back at them and be like, these people are idiots. 
You know, whenever I wonder if I should do something, I ask myself, would an idiot do that thing? <laughs> if the answer is yes, I do not do it. Paul, <laughs> Eugene Peterson writes this about this section. He says, there, these are all warning markers, danger in our history books, written down so that we don't repeat their mistakes. Our positions in the story are parallel. They at the beginning, we at the end, we are just as capable of messing it up as they were. Don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You're not going to not face this stuff. You're not going to not make these same mistakes. You could fall flat on your face as easy as anyone else. So forget about self-confidence. It's useless. I love this line. Cultivate God confidence. Cultivate God confidence. For those taking notes today, this brings us to our second way we must look to the Father. We must look to the Father for his purpose. We must look to the Father for his purpose. I love this last verse for today because it's uh, so often taken out of context. This is one of my favorite parts to like, mm, it drives me crazy when people use this out of context. Verse 13 says, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. Paul just proved that by saying, look, here's what the Israelites went through. We see this with the church of Corinth. There's nothing different. It's the same stuff. Maybe it's, you're not living in the wilderness, but, but the point is the same. You might have, uh, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Okay. You might have heard this rephrased as God doesn't give you anything you can't handle. Who's heard that? A couple of you. All right. That can't be further from the truth. Look at the example Paul lists above. They couldn't handle any of it. Right? So what? is Paul saying. First, he doesn't say that we won't be tempted, right? Now, the Bible says God doesn't do the tempting, right? God doesn't do the tempting, but he's also pointing to the fact that we are going to be tempted. Second, if you look at the end of the verse, he says that with that temptation that comes, he will also provide a way out. I had you underline this. For what? So that you may be able to bear it. That word means to endure, to endure under especially difficult circumstances. So the point is that in Jesus, we have a way of bearing suffering and enduring temptation without giving in. Not by the temptation going away. That's not what it promises us. It doesn't say, hey, you're going to face temptation, and if you just think happy thoughts or you just say Jesus' name, it's going to disappear. That's not what it says. And yet that's often how we've been taught it. I'm going to speak to some of you guys who have been Christians for a long time. There's an old Christianese saying, and it goes like this. Sometimes God closes the door to open a window. Oh, I got you guys. I got you. Open a window. Sometimes God closes the door to open a window. Right. There's, there's my old school Christians right there. Here's the truth. Here's the truth. Sometimes God closes a door so the house will fall on you. Right? I, I feel the same way. Exactly. For those who didn't hear, she said, oh my goodness. Yes, exactly. You see, we have a suffering Christ, a suffering Messiah. And so what happens is we meet Christ in our suffering. The Bible says that not only is suffering a part of our journey with Jesus, but that it always has a purpose. 
It always has a purpose. In the book of James, James writes in James 1, 2-4, Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, eat some comfort food. No, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Well, there's that word again, endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. When we are suffering and when we are struggling, the key is to stop trying to get out of it. That is the most unnatural thing we could ever do. Instead of trying to figure out how to make it go away, we need to see how we can endure it by keeping our eyes on Jesus. When the Israelites were being led in the desert, they had to keep their eyes on what to guide them and direct them? The pillar of fire and the cloud. If they took their eyes off that, they would not know where they're going. When they're walking through the parted Red Sea, the only way they know where to go is by what? Looking at the direction God told them to go. Going the wrong direction leads them right back into the army of, king, of the Pharaoh of Egypt. When they're being bitten by poisonous snakes, they were told to keep their eyes on the instrument of healing and God would rescue and redeem them. I remember when my dad was diagnosed with cancer and uh, another time when my son uh, was surprisingly born with Down syndrome. We didn't know that he was going to have Down syndrome. And, uh, and both of these things, uh, they were separated by, by quite a number of years, but, but they brought up very similar responses from people. People's responses are always, uh, they amaze me. And it wasn't the whispering or the withdrawal that got us. You know, when you're like walking in a room and people are obviously talking about you and then they're like, oh, I'm not talking about you. Um, the hardest part was the encouragement. Like most people who have gone through this, you've gone through hard times and suffering. Uh, we were inundated with, oh, you've got to check this website out. You've got to try this diet. You've got to try this supplement. This pill will make your dad's cancer go away. Or even one person told me, make my son's Down syndrome less Down syndrome. Worse than that, though, was all the happy talk. Like the suggestions that this somehow was some sort of blessing in disguise. Part of God's great and wonderful plan for our lives. With both my dad's cancer and my son's Down syndrome, we heard the same things. God must be up to something. You must be very special for God to trust you with something like this. Or isn't it good to know that everything happens for a reason? My all-time personal favorite. God is king of the universe, and he is in control, and he is good. But that doesn't mean he's the direct cause of everything. Sometimes the cause of things that are happening is we're dumb and we make bad choices. We face those consequences, like everything happens for a reason. Yeah, you made a bad choice. That's the consequence of stupidity. Sometimes it's people sin against us. But ultimately, we live in a world that is not the way that God intended and so God is not the direct cause of everything that happened. And yet God can and will accomplish his good purposes no matter what. God can redeem and restore and rescue and repurpose those hardships. But that doesn't mean that everything that happens is somehow good or necessary. In this month, on April 3rd, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the mountaintop speech. He was assassinated on April 4th. God did not assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. God did not make Cain kill Abel or Adam and Eve eat the fruit. God did not give my dad cancer and get, God did not give my son Down syndrome. 
Those things come because we live in a world that is different than the one that God intended. Murder and disease happen because the world is broken from sin. And sometimes the pain and the trials and the hardships that we face are the results of our foolish choices or other people's foolish choices, but we still have to live in the consequences of them. That's not God's doing. That's humanity's doing. Romans 8.28 says this, another verse that relates to this that's taken out of context. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Notice what the scripture says. All things work together for the good of those, not God works all things out how we want and feels good for us. It simply says that God is at work in all things. In fact, when you read this verse in context, you have to include verse 29. Romans 8, 28 28 and 29 says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What is the purpose in verse 28? What is the purpose of the things that we are called to endure? We find the answer in verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the purpose, to look more like Jesus, to become more Christ-like, if we're going to put it in Christianese words. For those taking notes today, this brings us to our third and final observation. We must look to the Father for our identity, for our identity. Our identity, Paul writes, does not come from who we think we are. It doesn't come from who the world thinks we are. It only comes from who God says we are. Sticking in Romans 8 for just a couple more minutes, it says this, going to help us grasp the full context of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. First, notice that Paul in Romans 8 doesn't apply to everybody. It says this, it applies to those who God loves and have been called according to his purpose. That means that they know and love Jesus and are his obedient apprentices. If you think about it, that leaves out a lot of people God is not speaking to in this verse. The coworker who has no interest in God and just had a child diagnosed with autism, God loves her. He has a preferred future for her if and when she comes to apprentice Jesus. But Romans 8.28 is not speaking to her. No, this passage is speaking to those who are apprenticing Jesus. The passage is for those whose identity is in Jesus. The beloved sons and daughters of the living God. The children who are living under grace not because of their goodness, but because of the goodness of God. The Bible says those who apprentice Jesus, who have publicly publicly confessed that they are not in charge of their lives and surrendered to control to Jesus. Those who have given up their right of self-governance to be governed and ruled by the king of the kingdom of heaven and are not just made simple citizens of that new kingdom but are adopted into God's family as children and given an inheritance to Jesus. That's what happens when we begin to apprentice Jesus. This matters because going back to our first Corinthians passage, we now have a responsibility as both citizens of that kingdom and family members in God's family. As children of the king, we are supposed to be more and more like him every single day. How do we do that? We're supposed to be learning from the mistakes that we make, the mistakes of others, those who have gone before us. We're supposed to be remembering God's favor and grace and goodness, and we continue to endure suffering because it produces character. How? Well, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus and continually remembering who God is and what he's done. When we are enduring temptation and suffering and hardship, we often respond to it by one of two ways. Those of us in that, well, everything will turn out to be good crowd can get hurt, angry, and disappointed when God doesn't make it right. 
Those of us in this, this tragedy proves that God isn't who he says, God isn't who he says he is, that he's not faithful, he doesn't show up. We can feel like nothing is worth it because why would we follow him if everything just keeps turning out bad? Both of us, both of those views end up glossing over sin. Let's be honest. Well, if I'm forgiven, why should I even care about sin? I've heard people say that an affair was a part of God's plan because their second marriage turned out to be good, better than the the first one. But here's the thing. God didn't cause the affair to happen. That's sin in their lives. God overcame the devastation. God overcame the pain. God overcame and restored and brought healing. But that's what grace is about. That doesn't mean that God condoned it or sanctioned it or thought it was good. That doesn't mean that God caused it to happen. Now listen, here's the other thing we need to know. We don't know why God allows some events and not others. We don't know which ones he's planning to use in the ways that we see or don't see, and we don't know which ones he's going to deal with when we get to heaven. In the meantime, every trial or hardship calls for the exact same response from us. Obedience. We have to obey. We are to do the right things no matter the outcome. Sometimes that obedience is rewarded in this life and sometimes we won't see that re- obedience, uh, the result of that obedience until we're with Jesus. Only time's going to tell. The danger is in spending all of our time trying to see the why, which all of us do, or insist on there being a silver lining. This has a purpose. I'm going to find it. Instead of just going, God, my eyes are on you. I don't understand, but I'm going to be, be, be obedient anyway. The path to obedience always takes the high road. It tells the truth even if truth brings pain. It refuses to return evil for evil even when vengeance is right there. It's thankful even when there's not much thankful to, not much to be thankful for. It walks with integrity even when no one else is doing it. It does the right thing even when it doesn't work out so well. God has not promised that everything will work out in this life, but he has promised that no matter what happens, he will never leave us and never forsake us. That promise is part of our inheritance as the beloved children of God. Good? Just a moment, we're going to take communion. And communion is a 2,000-year-old tradition. It's a sacrament. There's, there's something that happens to us in the midst of communion, much like baptism, and, and, and God meets us, does something spiritually in us as we participate in communion. And communion is a reminder for us of what Christ has done, the ways that he has been faithful even when we have not, the ways that he has continued to do what he has done, the way that he continues to redeem and restore and renew and refresh, not because of our good works, but because of his. And so our participation by taking a simple cup of juice, a simple piece of bread, and remembering this is that God continues to do something special in that for us. And so here's the way that we do it at this church in, in a few minutes. You'll be able to come forward, grab the juice and the cup, go back, and just take it with your family, uh, with your community group, your DNA group, your friends, whatever. Uh, but just take a moment, make sure your heart is right before the Lord, that, that you go, God, this is what we're doing. Pac-Man? We're doing Pac-Man. Okay, cool. Uh, just take that moment and go, God, you, you do what you're going to do. It's, it's good. And again, make sure that your heart is right before the Lord, and then, uh, and then we will continue to sing, sing the song that reminds us of our statements of faith. If you need a gluten-free option, it's stage, my stage right. Right here, you're welcome to go to that table. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness. I thank you that everything you do is not dependent on us reaching some level or coming to you, but on your goodness because you are good, your goodness because you are love, your 
faithfulness because you choose to be faithful for your name's sake, not because we've earned it or deserved it. In this moment, as we come before you to participate in communion, I pray that you would meet us where we're at, right in the midst of our heart. We love you in your name, Jesus.